Hello, and welcome to Primary Care Anywhere. This is a resident-led podcast from the Internal Medicine Residents at the University of Utah. I'm Dr. Sarah Linson, a PGY3, and I'll be one of your hosts. Today on the show, we're talking about alcohol use. By optimizing the screening, prevention, and treatment of unhealthy alcohol use, primary care providers have the opportunity to make a big impact on individual and public health. Unfortunately, research shows that less than 5% of adults with alcohol use disorder receive treatment. So today we want to provide you with the information you need to take care of this diverse group of patients in the primary care setting. Let's go to the clinic. Mr. Daniels is a 50-year-old man with hypertension, obstructive sleep apnea, and class 3 obesity who presents to your clinic for routine follow-up. He uses his BiPAP nightly but has a hard time adhering to his antihypertensive regimen. Since his last visit six months ago, he's gained about 10 pounds. He really wants to lose weight and has been making healthier food choices, but he hasn't been exercising because he's feeling pretty down. When you ask him about alcohol use, he tells you he has a few beers every night after work and a few more than that on the weekends. Let's talk about next steps in the evaluation of Mr. Daniel's drinking and what we can do to support him. First, you'll hear from Dr. Ben Gowley on the health benefits and harms, followed by Dr. Alec Hansen on prevention and screening, Dr. Beth McDonald on the diagnosis and evaluation, Dr. Eric McLean on treatment, And special thanks to Dr. Josh White on creating the infographic for this episode. Hi, I'm Ben Gowley, and I'll be talking about the benefits and harms of alcohol use. The popular media often loves talking about studies promoting the health benefits of low-risk alcohol consumption, especially as compared to heavy or no alcohol use. And they're right. Some observational studies have suggested some benefit to low-risk alcohol use. These observed benefits include better cardiovascular health and a lower risk for diabetes, dementia, and depression. However, what the media may not say are the problems these studies have. These studies suffer from significant confounding by lifestyle, socioeconomic, and behavioral factors that are already associated with low-risk drinking. In contrast to these pro-alcohol studies, large cohort studies have found no benefit to moderate alcohol intake after adjusting for factors such as smoking rates, BMI, physical activity, and dietary factors. Unfortunately, randomized controlled trials examining alcohol intake and overall health are lacking. The more current trends in literature are consistent with any alcohol use at all being overall harmful to human health. The CDC stands by the most recent USDA dietary guidance, which calls for moderation in those who already drink, and I recommend people who do not already drink to not take up alcohol use. The World Health Organization goes a step further. They published a statement in January of 2023 affirming that there is no completely safe alcohol intake level. Alcohol use can be damaging to pretty much any disease or organ system that you can think of, including cancers, infectious disease, digestive diseases, neurologic disease, endocrine disease, cardiovascular disease, hypertension. It can worsen behavioral conditions and lead to injuries and interpersonal violence. In 2016, alcohol was the seventh leading cause of death and disability-adjusted life years globally. The WHO estimates about 5% of the global burden of disease and injury is attributable to alcohol. Some patients are at a higher risk of developing adverse consequences of alcohol use. Patients who begin drinking at an earlier age tend to have heavier alcohol consumption later in life, 
along with heavy drinking's concomitant injuries and health effects. Women tend to have more rapid progression to alcohol use disorder and develop alcohol-related liver disease more quickly than men, though overall fewer women than men have unhealthy alcohol use patterns. Older patients are more vulnerable to harms from alcohol use, especially through alcohol's harmful impacts on cognition and alcohol's interaction with other medical conditions older patients may have or medicines they may be taking. The harms of alcohol use also tend to be more concentrated in groups who are already at risk for poorer outcomes, including lower socioeconomic groups, groups in rural settings, and groups historically marginalized based on race, ethnicity, or sexuality. I'll turn the conversation over now to Dr. Hansen. Hey everyone, my name is Alec Hansen. I'm a second year internal medicine resident here at the University of Utah, and I'm excited to talk about prevention and screening for alcohol use. Alcohol use is very common among the patients that we see, whether this is in the primary care setting or an inpatient setting, it's definitely something that we can see a lot. Both the USPSTF and the CDC recommend that clinicians screen for unhealthy alcohol use. I think this is really important for all of our patients, but there are certain patients or groups of patients such as pregnant individuals where this can be even more important. So taking a step back, I think that as clinicians, we know that alcohol use can be harmful, and we often see patients who have unhealthy habits with alcohol use. But even knowing this, it has been reported that we often underscreen and undertreat our patients. So I want to go over a couple specific tools that we can use to screen our patients for unhealthy alcohol use. So as with any screening tool, we want an ideal balance between the sensitivity and specificity of the test as it relates to our screening population. And one of the things that I've noticed after spending more time in the clinic and inpatient during residency is that a screening tool has to be user-friendly or unfortunately it won't get done. So there are two screening tools I want to highlight. First is the US Audit-C, which is a version of the Audit-C that includes US consumption standards. And then the second screening tool is the SAS-Q, or the Single Alcohol Screening Question. Both of these tests can be administered in less than two minutes, and both have good sensitivity and specificity. So to get a little bit more specific, um, questions that are included in the US Audit C are, how often did you have a drink containing alcohol in the past year? That was question number one. Question number two is how many drinks did you have on typical day when you were drinking in the past year? And then question number three is how often did you have six or more drinks on one occasion in the past year? And each of these questions have answers that range on a scale of zero to four and an overall score for men greater than four or women greater than three is considered to be a positive test, suggesting that the patient's drinking is affecting his or her health. So this is the test that is used at the VA, which is where my continuity clinic is, and CPRS will give me a reminder to perform the alcohol screen, which I can open up directly in the note and fill it out as I'm asking the patient the questions. So I found that very helpful. The SASQ has only one question, which is how many times in the past year have you had either four or more drinks in a day? 
that's for women, or five or more drinks in a day for men. And a response of one or more days in the last year is a positive screen, suggesting the need for further follow-up. So as anyone who has worked in the primary care setting knows, primary care visits can be difficult with many health items to follow up on, as well as new complaints that need further evaluation. And it can be difficult to remember every single screening question that needs to be asked. And so integration into the electronic medical record can help physicians stay on top of screening, which will ultimately benefit patients. Another option would be to incorporate these screening questionnaires into patient intake paperwork and let patients report on them themselves. So another thing that's important to consider, I think, is that patients who have unhealthy alcohol use can also have unhealthy coexistent substance use. And it is important to screen patients for other substances, including tobacco or drugs. But I think it's really important to keep in mind that we need to do this in a non-judgmental matter and to always have patient-centered discussions with our patients regarding their own health. I think another benefit of screening for alcohol use, even in patients who currently have alcohol use that is within acceptable limits, is that it gives us a chance to talk about what unhealthy alcohol use looks like and helps us build a therapeutic relationship with our patients so that if they ever do develop unhealthy alcohol use, we've already set the stage that we are here to help them. So in summary, screening for alcohol use with the ultimate goal of either preventing unhealthy alcohol use or finding patients who are currently having unhealthy alcohol use is important and often underperformed. Tools that we can use are the SAS-Q or the Audit-C. Further integration into the EMR or patient questionnaires can help us do this. All right, so hopefully that information helps us screen our patients for unhealthy alcohol use and ultimately helps patients get the care they deserve. Thanks so much for listening. Hi everyone, this is Beth McDonald, a second year resident at the University of Utah Internal Medicine Program. I'll be covering some diagnosis and evaluation that we can do in a primary care setting. Now that we've followed all the great screening recommendations from Dr. Hansen, what do we do with the results of this screen? For patients with a negative screen, inform them that there's unlikely health benefits with alcohol consumption as there's frequent misconceptions and counsel on continued low-risk drinking behavior or abstinence. However, it is important to remember that even with the cutoffs that lead to a negative screen, there still is evidence that more than 100 grams per week of alcohol had linear relations with increased risk of stroke, coronary artery disease without MI, heart failure, fatal hypertension, and fatal aortic aneurysm compared to individuals who drink less than 100 grams per week. When you obtain a positive screen, it's important to further stratify the level of risk to distinguish between at-risk use, heavy episodic drinking, and alcohol use disorder as treatment options are guided by severity. A good way to do this is utilizing the alcohol symptom checklist as high reliability for measuring DSM AUD criteria in primary care settings. In order to qualify as AUD or alcohol use disorder per the DSM-5, you need two out of the 11 criteria occurring within a 12-month period. Some of these criteria include alcohol taken in larger amounts over a longer period than intended, persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control alcohol use, craving or a strong desire or urge to use alcohol, as well as other manifestations of alcohol use disorder. Severe alcohol use disorder is meeting greater than four of these criteria and may benefit from more intensive treatment regimens. With any level of unhealthy alcohol use, evaluate co-occurring medical disorders, including additional substance use, nicotine, cannabis, or non-medical use of 
prescription medications, possible co-occurring psychiatric disorders. It's also important to assess our patient's treatment history, family history of substance use disorders, and mental illness, and any alcohol-related consequences patients have experienced. Unlike many other evaluations for chronic diseases, the role of physical exam in labs is slightly less in alcohol use disorder. However, alcohol withdrawal could manifest with abnormal vital signs, including tachycardia, hypertension, fever, autonomic hyperactivity, and CNS effects. Consequences of heavy alcohol use can be seen with liver, cardiac, or neurocognitive diseases. However, labs are not routinely used to screen for unhealthy use, but some findings can raise concern in prompting further evaluation and discussion. These include increased erythrocyte MCV, elevated GGT, and increased AST to ALT ratio. For monitoring patients being treated for alcohol use disorder, there are certain alcohol biomarkers like phosphatidylethanol and carbohydrate-deficient transferrin that can be useful as a complement to self-report in a patient-centered manner and interpreted in the context of patient characteristics. When discussing alcohol use with patients, it's important to remember the heavy impact that language choice can have and the relation to stigma associated with alcohol use. There are important phrases to avoid, like problem drinking or binge drinking, as they are variable definitions. Preferred current terminology is heavy episodic drinking. Similarly, alcohol abuse is an outdated DSM diagnosis, and it's more appropriate to use people-first language, like a person with AUD or alcohol use disorder, rather than an alcoholic or alcohol abuser. Similarly, return to use is the preferred phrasing over relapse. Overall, when discussing unhealthy alcohol use with our patients, it can be helpful to compare it with another chronic medical condition and highlight how the cause is a combination of genetic and behavioral factors and that treatment requires a comprehensive approach to care. It is important to always be mindful that we are empathetic and non-judgmental providers while clearly stating our concerns and recommendations to patients. Unlike individuals with alcohol use disorder, the goal for those that stratify into the unhealthy drinking category is not necessarily abstinence, but it is limiting alcohol consumption to low risk levels. Now that we've screened, diagnosed, and evaluated our patient's level of alcohol use, Let's talk about some treatment options. Thanks, Beth. This is Eric McLean, a current PGY2, and I'll be covering the treatments for unhealthy alcohol use and alcohol use disorder. Primary care is an ideal setting for discussing unhealthy alcohol use with patients and is likely something that most primary care providers have done to a certain extent in their practice. The treatment approach for patients with unhealthy alcohol use is guided by the severity of their use and ranges from brief interventions in the clinical setting to the combination of medications with psychological interventions. However, the shared big picture goal for all patients with unhealthy alcohol use is to cease consumption of alcohol or decrease use to lower risk levels to prevent alcohol-related harms. Let's start off by discussing brief interventions in the primary care setting which are helpful with all severities of unhealthy alcohol use, but may be the only intervention necessary for patients with at-risk alcohol use or mild alcohol use disorder. When counseling a patient about unhealthy alcohol use, it is valuable to explore the patient's perception of their alcohol use and its associated risks and harms. It may also be helpful to provide personalized and generalized reflection about the effects of alcohol on health. All brief interventions should include clear advice with specific recommendations about alcohol use, which may include abstinence or decreasing alcohol intake to low-risk levels. After providing a brief and clear recommendation, ask the patient about their interest and motivation to change their behavior. Patients who express interest should be provided with treatment options and resources to elicit which strategy they think will work best for them. 
in patients who are not interested in change, it can be helpful to ask what it would take to motivate change. Brief interventions are effective. A systematic review in JAMA in 2018 found that a brief intervention for patients with unhealthy alcohol use reduced intake by 1.6 drinks per week more than in those without a brief intervention at 6 to 12 months. Overall, patient preference for treatment options is an important consideration for alcohol use disorder, as the most effective treatment option is the one that the patient is willing to do. Moving beyond brief interventions, let's talk about treatments for moderate to severe alcohol use disorder. Medication treatment should be recommended for all patients with moderate to severe alcohol use disorder. In addition, studies have shown that a combination of medications with evidence-based therapies, such as cognitive behavioral therapy or motivational enhancement therapy, are superior to medications alone. These therapies should be offered in conjunction with medication treatment when available. Mutual support groups are an additional resource that may be valuable for all patients with unhealthy alcohol use, including those with moderate to severe alcohol use disorder. Common support groups include Alcoholics Anonymous, or AA, and Smart Recovery, which typically offer both in-person and online support groups. AA has a spiritual foundation, while Smart Recovery takes a scientific approach to recovery. These support groups are free and widely available and can have significant benefits for patients. With that said, let's take a brief dive into the medications for alcohol use disorder. Currently, there are three medications approved by the United States FDA for patients with moderate to severe alcohol use disorder. These are naltrexone, acamprosate, and disulfiram. Naltrexone is an opioid receptor antagonist that reduces the rewarding effects of alcohol. It comes in an intramuscular and oral formulations, with the intramuscular formulation a good option for patients at risk for poor adherence to daily medications. Naltrexone is contraindicated in patients who are opioid-dependent and should be used with caution in patients with underlying liver disease. The second medication is a acamprosate, which modulates glutamate transmission and is thought to reduce neuronal hyperexcitability. It is effective in maintaining abstinence from alcohol, but has also shown benefit in reducing heavy drinking. Unfortunately, acamprosate is dosed three times daily, which can make adherence challenging. The dose should be reduced in those with renal insufficiency. The last FDA-approved medication is disulfiram, which inhibits aldehyde dehydrogenase, resulting in an accumulation of acetaldehyde, leading to nausea, vomiting, flushing, headache, and other unpleasant side effects alongside alcohol consumption. It therefore impacts alcohol use via negative reinforcement and can be a good option for patients who are motivated to abstain. Patients must be abstinent from alcohol for 12 hours prior to administration. Use disulfiram with caution or avoid in patients with cardiovascular disease, liver disease, or history of psychosis. Data is limited about the appropriate duration of treatment, so decisions about stopping or changing strategies can be individualized from patient to patient. There are also several medications in the United States that are used off-label for alcohol use disorder in patients who have not achieved goals with first-line agents and who have other indications for these medications. The meds include topiramate, baclofen, and gabapentin. We won't take a deep dive into these options today, but I encourage you to read more about these options if you have patients who may benefit from them.
A common question in the primary care setting is, when should I refer this patient to a specialty service? In treatment of alcohol use disorder, referral to specialty services, including addiction specialists, should be considered when patients do not respond to treatment and for those with significant comorbidity. One final important aspect of alcohol use disorder is recognizing and treating alcohol withdrawal. Treatment for alcohol withdrawal is beyond the scope of this episode, but primary care physicians should have a low threshold to refer patients with alcohol withdrawal syndrome to a supervised setting for detoxification. With that said, I'll turn it back to Dr. Linson to wrap things up. Thanks, Eric. Getting back to our case of Mr. Daniels, you learn that he often has five or more alcoholic drinks in a single evening, despite intending to have one or two. He was recently placed on probation at work, and even though he feels this is related to his alcohol use, he hasn't been able to cut back. Based on this information, you diagnose Mr. Daniels with alcohol use disorder. He receives non-judgmental, person-centered counseling on how alcohol use disorder affects his other chronic medical conditions, including hypertension, obesity, and mood disorder. Through motivational interviewing, you find that he's ready for change. He does not have any contraindications to naltrexone therapy. Remembering that he has difficulty taking daily pills, you prescribe him the long-acting injectable. You also refer him to a mutual help group and schedule follow-up to monitor the effect of these interventions. Let's review the key takeaways from this episode. Number one, research shows that the health harms associated with alcohol use far outweigh any benefit. Some of these harms include liver disease, hypertension, neurological and mood disorders, accidental injury, and interpersonal violence. Number two, every patient should be screened for unhealthy alcohol use in the primary care setting. The Audit-C and SAS-Q are examples of validated screening tools. Number three, there are several FDA-approved treatments for alcohol use disorder and some medications that have evidence for off-label use. Each patient's treatment plan should be tailored to their specific needs and comorbidities. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Primary Care Anywhere. We'll see you next time. Thank you.